Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Oh, what a day it was. The inaugural Mooney Goes Wild Birdwatch Ireland Great Big Garden Birdwatch was broadcast today between 3 and 4pm live here on RTE Radio 1. And it seems you loved it. If the text, the emails and the voice messages are anything to go by, not to mention our Facebook survey, which was set up by our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating. So we wanted to know the most common birds in your garden. And we gave you the most common birds according to the Birdwatch Ireland Garden Bird Survey. And you tick the boxes to let us know if they were in your garden. We'll give you the final tally a little bit later on. But over 2,000 of you took part an amazing result. We are thrilled, Skinny. Thank you very much indeed. But Daniel wasn't the only person up early this morning. Oh, no. I had asked our man in Cork, Jim Wilson, to set his alarm for very early in the morning, as Pat Mustard would say, in order to get up and tell us about the first birds that come into his garden. Not that he needs an alarm clock. This man gets up early every morning, you understand? That was the sound of my grandmother's clock, which has been keeping time for over 130 years, going off at 6.30. I don't usually need an alarm to get up, but Derek insisted I set one so that I wouldn't miss the first bird to start moving around in our garden here in Cove. It's a nice morning. Uh, Winds freshening, I think, a bit from the southwest. Uh, dry at the moment, though I think there is a chance of rain later on. Uh, not too cold. And uh, sunrise isn't due until 8 o'clock. But uh, here I am in the dark. I've just rolled up the blind on the window so I could see out into the garden. And the only movement I can see at the moment are the frogs down in the pond at the end of the garden. They have incredible eyesight. As soon as I roll up the blind, they all scatter. But apart from the frogs, who have been romancing all night and now going to settle down for the day, it is very quiet in the garden. It is almost pitch dark. Apart from the street lights, we're in suburban cove. But that does mean some birds can get up a bit earlier, especially in these short winter days. So I will wait for a while and see what's going to appear first. Ah, I see a movement. Yes, small bird. Ah, yes, it's the robin. The robin, the first bird in our garden. On the Mooney Goes Wild Big Garden Bird Watch. I'm not too surprised, really. A small bird, but got a great big eyes for the size of it and that means it can come out and feed before the sun comes up proper Uh, there is some truth to the saying of the early bird catches the worm that's for sure and the robin is one of those birds up bright and early so at uh, 23 minutes past 7 we record our first bird in the garden of the day 
and it was just the first of many birds to appear in Jim Wilson's garden throughout the day. We'll talk to Jim shortly from his home in Cove in County Cork. But first, let's say hello to the panel. Niall Hatch is here and Terry Flanagan is also with us in studio. Niall, what a day. It was absolutely fantastic, Derek. What a day. Uh, so many people all mobilised together, t- looking at garden birds, reporting back to us to have over 2,000 people taking part in our on-the-spot poll during the during the programme. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, it really does focus attention on garden birds and on Birdwatch Ireland's uh, Irish Garden Bird Survey, which we run each, each year. For the last 37 years, we've been doing it, all started by Jim Wilson. Uh, and uh, the data we get from that is absolutely phenomenal. It tells us so much uh, about what's happening, the, the health of our environment, the health of a bird population, it's not just about the birds. The birds are the most visible form of wildlife that we have. So by checking for the changes in populations and distributions of our common bird species, we can tell a lot about the rarer birds, about the food that they eat, about mm. how weather's affecting them, how plants are doing, all of this. And we get all of that from watching the birds. Now, how many people take part in your survey each year? It, it's thousands of households across Ireland. Uh, and it's, it's, a very, uh, it's a very involved survey in, in one, on one level because it goes for 13 weeks. We can do as much or as little as you like. What we ask people to do is we ask them to keep track of on a weekly basis, the different bird species they see coming into their garden, but also the highest number they see of any given species at any one time. Uh, and from that, we're able to tell a huge amount. And when you then have thousands of people doing this for decades at a time, the amount of data you build up is astonishing. Literally millions and millions of data points come in. Uh, and from that, we can track all sorts of changes over the years. When we started 37 years ago, some birds we took for granted have become a lot more scarce. The, the greenfinch is one that springs to mind, a bird that has declined because of a disease pandemic that's hit it and then there's as we heard during the programme earlier today uh, birds we wouldn't have dreamt of uh, 35, 37 years ago birds like the great spotted woodpecker are now while not commonplace increasing in gardens quite rapidly and Eric Dempsey actually had some in his garden during the programme so it's really it swings and roundabouts some winners some losers but we wouldn't know any of that without the survey And the top five each year? The top five each year it's very consistently robin in number one usually vying for second and third place it's the blackbird and the blue tit sometimes they change position but always in number two and three then uh, you have the great tit and the magpie. So they're your top five pretty consistently. Uh, and I think a lot of people would recognise those in their own garden. They are very common birds. Now, you mentioned our poll on Facebook and the man behind that was our own Daniel Keating, who's our broadcast coordinator. So, Daniel, tell us about the Facebook poll that you set up. Yes, the poll you were, you were mentioning, um, it's up since 7am this morning. Um, what we done was we put the top five birds, like Niall spoke about there, the robin, the blackbird, the blue tit, the great tit and the magpie um, and people could vote on what was the most birds they saw in their garden within that top five list. So we had over 2,000 votes and coming in at the top is the robin and that came in at 27% of the vote followed by the blue tit which came in at 21% of the vote and what was quite interesting is as I said there is throughout the day as I was watching the blackbird was kind of battling against the blue tit the great hit uh, came in at fourth uh, at thirteen percent of the vote. The magpie was eleven percent of the vote, and the starling was another one that was popping up there that people saw, and that was seven percent of the vote. So it was really quite interesting to see across the country. Yeah, it's interesting to see that and I'm sure there's lots of people shouting at their radios that's not the most common bird in my garden. That's the whole point of a survey like this. No two gardens are the same. It all comes down to the plants you have there, the plants that are nearby, how close you are to water, what kind of food you're putting out and how observant you are. Um, Some birds are easier to identify than others. The robin being particularly easy to identify so that's one of the reasons why it tends to fare so well in these polls. Whereas a bird like the wren which uh, most listeners will have in their gardens it's much more cryptically plumaged. It's 
camouflage. It hides in the undergrowth. It doesn't come to the bird table. And so people don't notice those. And so what we notice, though, is that same bias happens throughout each year of the survey. So we can actually still tell whether the populations are going up or going down. And uh, you mentioned there about uh, the, the ranking of the birds. Well, certainly when we were watching the live feed from Jim Wilson's garden during the programme, it was certainly the great tit that was winning in his garden, at his feeder. It was certainly the dominant species there. And just goes to show that, you know, no, no two gardens are the same. What I like best about the survey, Nile, is that it doesn't concentrate on just numbers. It's not about numbers of birds, but it's about dispersion of the birds. Because you talk, and we talk every year about the robin being the number one bird in the country. Yes, it's the number one bird as it's dispersed throughout the country. But in every garden at this time of year, you're only going to see one robin in the garden. Whereas if you look in my garden, I see sparrows and I see 40 sparrows at a time. But yet the sparrow will be way down. So it gives a whole different viewpoint on the actual birds. And what's good too is, is when you look at the fluctuations of the birds. If I think back over the last 20 or 30 years and I see some of the birds, initially I would see lots and lots of the tit family, the blue tits in particular, 7, 8, 10. And then for a long time, I'd be lucky to see one. Now this year, their numbers have seemed to crop back up again. And I've seen during this survey, I've seen five. Now I know people around the country are listening and say, only five? Yeah, but I'm in a suburban garden in Dublin 15. You're not going to see much more. It's not going to be like Jim's uh, video that we were looking at today, where they're in and out and in and out all the time. But to me, it means a lot. And it also gives lots and lots of information to you. And we've also seen other birds that have started to do really, really well. And one would be the collared dove. Mm. You know, I remember going back 30 years ago, I never ever saw a collared dove and now their numbers have been increasing considerably and they're a lovely bird to see. And another one this year that I've seen in the garden that, okay, I'd see them occasionally in the estate, but I don't think I've ever recorded them in the garden bird survey, are the, the long-tailed tits. And to see a family of them going around, and in fact, you'll always hear them before you'll see them. Mm-hmm. There's that lovely little chirping sound mm-hmm. of them. And then you look up to see where they are in what tree they're in and you'll see them fluttering around. So I think it's really important the survey and I think it's really important the way it's done. Don't concentrate on the numbers of birds but on the dispersion. And you still have plenty of time left there's an entire month. That's right it goes right up to the end of February so there's plenty of time to do that and you can find full details at rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Let's talk to Jim Wilson now who's in Coven County Cork. Jim thank you very much indeed once again for all your help today and for setting up that live stream. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Derek, uh, I was um, panicking a little bit coming up to about 10 to 3. We were on air at 3 o'clock and all the birds deserted the feeders. They seemed to desert the whole garden. And I was saying, oh, no, we're going to have an hour of watching an empty bird table. Uh, but birds being birds, sure enough, they all came back and you, you'd swear they knew they were going to be on the radio uh, and and live live also on, on social media. And uh, they were great, uh, coming and going and coming and going. But I was watching around the rest of the garden as well, because, of course, the Garden Bird Survey, uh, it initially was the Garden Bird Feeding Survey. We, were, we focused on just feeders to get people who were feeding birds interested and hooked on it. And then it was expanded to any bird using the garden for any reason and while we were on air uh, while the camera was was focused on the table i was looking around and there was 
wood pigeons stum I always say stumbling through the ivy trying to get at the, the juiciest ivy berries there was two or three of them there was two blackbirds on the hawthorn uh, a magpie came in and had a wash uh, so they all count in the survey now so even if you don't like putting out food for some reason um, you, you can still take part you, you, you just watch what comes and goes out of your garden because gardens when you add up the area of all the gardens in Ireland it is probably the by a mile the biggest nature reserve uh, in the country when you think of it uh, if everybody looked after their garden for nature uh, and you add all those little patches up together it is a massive area of Ireland and uh, it's something uh, that is of great value now especially when habitats we're losing a lot of habitats in the in the broader countryside uh, these little oases uh, become far more important that's right Jim they absolutely do and when you consider that we have roughly one and a half million private gardens give or take in Ireland if everybody who had a garden was to take at least one step to benefit the birds in their garden be that putting out food or putting out water or putting out native plants to attract native insects or ideally all of those things what that would do is it, it, it acts like an oasis for many of those birds that are resident in the area but it also it's sort of a patchwork that allows birds to disperse and move to new habitats and move around uh, and that therefore increases things like genetic diversity prevents inbreeding helps birds for their migration helps them to get fitter all of these things and we can do that in our own gardens we have the power to do that it's not just about the birds either Nile to a survey like this it's also about people because the feel good factor that you get as, as you'd said earlier and as as Eric had said earlier on today, you know, that you could be sitting there for three or four hours. Well, that, that leads into this biophilia effect, you know, this feel-good factor. That's why when you had lots of hospitals years ago, you used to, like the Matter Hospital and Ger- the old Jervis Street Hospital, that you would have a park outside it so people could look out from their hospital bed into it and that they would feel good. It's the very same thing with the Garden Bird Survey, that people, they they feel good. They see the birds. They they want to do something to help the birds. They will then go out and they will put feeders out and they will take the cat in or put a bell on the cat or whatever. So it it really covers a lot of boxes. It does. And I think that one of the most important things about it is that it brings people to a better understanding of nature and the impact that we have on nature and how birds can thrive if they're given the right opportunities. And I think as well, what it does for a lot of people too, it opens their eyes to the, the world of birds because it's only a relatively small subset of Ireland's bird species mm-hmm. that will actually go into your garden and there's many many other species that won't go next near, near a garden but a lot of people will then go and explore yeah, and how many somewhere. birds on the bird list 460 it's about, four, it's about 460 or so in yeah. so how many of them are categorised as garden birds? Well, it's from the survey, so birds that we have recorded as being in gardens, you're looking at over 100. So maybe 120 species have been recorded. Some of those would be exceptionally rare and some would just be visitors that come in. We have very cold weather. You get strange things like lapwing and snipe and mm. redshank going into people's gardens. You wouldn't traditionally think of them as garden birds. But if they're using the garden for refuge, it all, it all counts. Uh, but of the birds that would tend to go into the, the average garden, you could expect maybe 20, 25 different species. Uh, and uh, then depending on how much water you have, what sort of trees you have around, you could be looking at a, a list of maybe 40 
garden bird species. Some like the, the, the robin, the wren, the blackbird, very common. Others like the great spotted woodpecker increasing. Some birds like birds like the meadow pipit or the black redstart species that are, you know, the meadow pipit's a very common Irish bird, not so much in gardens, but I get them in my own garden. I've had black redstart in my garden. This is a, 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 a very rare winter visitor to Ireland, um, but it does come into gardens. So, it, you know, that's the beauty of the survey. It, no two years are the same. What I love to do with the survey myself from my own garden, I like to compare year on year to see mm. the changes in my own garden over time. Yeah, well, lots of emails and text messages came in today. One of them came from MJ, who says, I live in an estate and I think that my neighbours feed birds too much all year round, which I think is interfering with nature and gives rise to rats. I was rare in the countryside and we only fed birds in the very cold periods. What's your opinion, Jim Wilson? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I am not a fan of putting out too much food um, because, again, you do you are attracting a lot of birds in uh, to a very concentrated area, especially if the garden is very small. So you've got to be proportionate. I mean, some people feel like I'll put out even more feeders, even more feeders, and sometimes that, that can be counterproductive. Uh, if there's an issue with rats, yeah, well, then you stop feeding. You know, I, I, I wouldn't lie uh, to anybody and suggest that it, they may attract them, but we haven't had one in the garden for years and years and years. Um, the thing is, it, you, you can feed them all year round. Uh, the, you'll find out in the summer that the birds themselves will stop coming to the table and the feeders, not like in the winter and outside of the breeding season, because the parents know best. They will tend to swap over and go for the lovely, fresh, natural food sources that are available, which is why they have their young at that time of year. And, and there is a fallback on to things especially I only put out peanuts in the summer and then I only put out half the amount or less than I normally put out because it goes off quicker uh, because fewer birds are feeding on it but now that we're getting these extreme weather events uh, with climate change having such an impact uh, that sometimes they're not able to feed on the natural sources such as the caterpillars and insects because the weather's just too bad but they can pop over to the uh, feeder and get some food there and that is better than none at all because we've had days during the summer where it's been too wet for too long and it hits it hits the birds uh, uh, really hard when they've got young and they can't feed Jim, I'd have to say I only ever feed in the wintertime. Start about the end of November and finish around St. Patrick's Day. That's fine. And the reason why I do that, well, a couple of reasons. Number one, I find the birds, they know best what they want to eat. And if I put out food in September or October in the garden, not a bird will go near it. No matter how much niger seed I put out or no matter how much peanuts or that I put out, they never ever come near it but then when you get that cold snap say at the the end of November or start of December that's when they start coming into the garden I also noticed too with them that they are very very particular about what they eat certainly in the in the wintertime if I take the blackbirds we have a pair of blackbirds in the garden that they always feed on apples but then once it comes into the the summertime they're not that keen on the apples at all they're going for the for the um, the meat they're going for the, the the likes of the worms and that and I presume it's to, to feed the young. So there is this thing should you stop feeding in the summertime. I know some people who feed all year round and they say it's very, very good. Personally, I don't. I just feed in the wintertime and I get the birds into the garden and I feel it's helping them then. It's helping them when they need most help.
I think, uh, Terry, it's somewhere in between. I always tell people there is no harm in feeding all your own if that's what you want to do, but you've got to do it at a, in a very controlled way with far less food put out. Uh, I stop feeding at the beginning of May mm. and I don't start again till October. So, like, I don't put out food all year round, but when people ask me, is there any harm in putting it out? I actually don't think there is if they do it properly. All right, Jim, thank you very much indeed for the moment. Now, Michelle Brown, our researcher, has joined us in studio. Michelle, with some feedback from today. Well, the woodpeckers really got people going, Derek. You read out a few texts earlier. Stephen Shanahan from Cabra was on, saying lots of cheeky sparrows here in Cabra. Um, they're loving the uh, wildness of the garden in particular, the mixed native hedges I've planted with our neighbour. So they've had 19 species so far this year, but they're still waiting for their first great spotted woodpecker. But as they're not far from the Phoenix Park, they have their fingers crossed. And he says hi to his neighbours the Kennys Well I just heard somebody only there last week saying that they believe that there's a woodpecker down in the Phoenix Park Oh okay okay, okay. There hasn't been, been confirmed yet but No there have been woodpeckers in the, the Phoenix Park for several years now I think yeah. around the American Ambassador's residence uh, Richard Conlon from Coothill and County Cabin was on about curlews in his garden this morning and it's tying up with um, an email from Dunshockland County Mead that came in recently uh, saying that they've been hearing seabirds but he can confirm that he saw a cur- at least one curlew in the field is it unusual that such a bird would rec- would frequent a field so far from the coast? Uh, no, that's actually perfectly normal. So we think of curlews, this, this wading bird with uh, the big, long, down-curved beak. They're often very much associated with mudflats and with estuaries, but they actually often breed well inland and spend the winter well inland as well. They breed in heathland and bogland, and unfortunately their breeding population is really under tr- in, in trouble at the moment in Ireland. In the winter, we get an influx of curlews that come from further north in Europe as well, and they will go well inland and they actually will happily feed on worms in fields if the ground is soft enough, which in, in this case it most likely is. Just a quick shout out to some of our international listeners. Um, Roseanne Rooney was on from Georgetown, Massachusetts. And um, she was saying that she's also invested in a broom squirrel buster plus bird feeder. And it works. The squirrel lands on the circular perch and the weight shuts down the shutters um, and they cannot eat. But um, she was wondering, now, do you have any tips for giving water to birds in her region? Because the water where she is freezes. Well, yes, the winter temperatures in that part of the world will be a lot colder than we get here in Ireland. And I would certainly avoid putting any kind of chemicals or anything into, into the water to prevent it freezing because the, there's no point in giving the birds that it could harm them. What I do in, in my own garden when it does go below freezing and this will work in North America as well if you get uh, if you get some boiling water in the morning um, we, we, I'd use my electric kettle not such a common <laughs> household implement in North America but a pan of boiling water and just pour that in over the ice uh, that will be uh, thought at least for a few minutes or an hour or so and that's enough time for the birds to come in to bathe and to, to drink. Some people also say if you put a floating ball like a tennis ball in the water it helps to break up the ice and it doesn't freeze over quite so quickly. Why would an electric kettle be an unusual thing in North America? Oh, it's, it's actually very rare to find electric kettles in North America. Um, it's, it's, uh, I think tea isn't quite such a popular drink there. A lot of people do drink tea, but uh, not to the same extent. And, and so you don't find them. One of the theories... Well, what that do they have? I'm no electrical engineer, but I know that uh, one of the, the reasons, I think, is because their electricity voltage is half ours, so it takes, it takes longer, longer for water to boil. So how do they make tea coffee. or coffee then? Yeah. Yeah, well, you, a coffee machine or you boil a, a kettle, like a, an old-fashioned whistling kettle on top of the stove. Well, you learn something new every 
day. <laughs> Michelle, is there more? Well, I could go on for the rest of the programme, Derek, but um, Rebecca was on from Cape Town, South Africa, saying lovely and hot here. But one of her favourite birds to watch this time of year are yellow-billed kites mm. that fly very low over a garden looking for food. That's a that's a close relative of the, the red kite that we have here in, in Ireland. It's, it's, um, it's a bird that was extinct here and then was reintroduced. So kites are large birds of prey, very lightweight though, with long forked tails. Uh, and uh, certainly it's amazing to hear what we're getting those reports from, from South Africa. So we can't take part in our Irish Garden Bird Survey. We'd love to get the reports. Well, there were people commenting from all over the world, I'm glad to say. So email Mooney at rte.ie anytime you like or visit the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, we had lots of reports in today's programme and one of them was made by yourself, Michelle. Tell us all about it. Well, it was Pauline and Frank Doyle who have been doing the Garden Bird Survey since the 90s, have been bird watching since the 80s and um, I went out to visit them in a very cold morning out in that line and they were telling me about the birds they see in their garden. It's a daisy. Oh. Oh, that's our garden there. We have a lawn and then we have a lot of shrubs around the walls and a bit of ivy, which is very important. Birds use ivy for shelter and to keep it warm. We have our feeders. We have apples, sunflower seed, niger seed and we have fat balls. Some birds have their favourite food and we'll stick to that a lot of the finches now will just go for the niger seed but the blackbirds they will take the apples that's right yes and if we have a blue tit nesting in the garden we usually keep peanuts up for them because we think the mother has a lot of hard work to feed the birds so at least they can have some food for themselves and they don't have to look so worn out and sometimes their feathers are so tatty looking you know (laughs) when they're feeding continuously (laughs) the tits are calling there in the, in the trees. You can see that those trees are very valuable for attracting birds for perches and, and also for safety. When they're frightened they go up there and they're happy and then they come back in And again. occasionally a sparrowhawk comes flying down the side of the house and we've seen oh, them take yeah. birds. I get very upset when it takes like a goldfinch or some bird I really like or a blue tit. It's something that enhanced your life. It has, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it means sometimes we share together. <laughs> Going back many years ago, we had loads and loads of house sparrows and then this almost disappeared. But now we notice they're coming back again. And I've counted quite a few. They know there's a source of food here. They're waiting. I can see them waiting in the trees. Has it given great peace to your life, do you think? Yes. well-being? Especially during COVID, I found, because of our age, we were not allowed out. And, like, it gave you great hope. I don't know whether you know the poem by Emily Dixon, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And it's really, like, it is true like that bird life do give you great hope. And then also watching when we have a bird box and when they have their young, it's great to see the devotion of the parents in that. And, you know, I'm in the kitchen all the time and, you know, I'm married a long time and chores become very monotonous and I'm always stopping with my binoculars and I'm looking out and uh, taking note of what's outside. You know, it makes the mundane more enjoyable. So even in a suburban garden, you can create an oasis for nature? You can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I think we're lucky because we have remnants of the old hedgerow that was there. But then it's attractive. There are berries, like we'd have black thorn and white thorn. And cotoneaster and things and like that. Yeah, they would be yeah. our own berries. And there's holly there as well. But all of these get insects that are suitable for the birds yeah. in Ireland. 
Oh, lovely report. Thank you very much indeed, Michelle. Pauline and Frank, you know them well, Niall, don't you? I do. Frank and Pauline Doyle are two of the nicest people I've ever met. I'm very, very fond of them and I'm really delighted to hear them on the radio there. They're big supporters of Birdwatch Ireland and of the Irish Garden Bird Survey and we owe them a great debt of gratitude. Jim Wilson, you could hear at the end of that report a great hit and when we were on air live today and looking at your live stream from your garden, all we could see were tits. <laughs> yes, Derek, they're the great tits. This winter, for some reason, we've seen six at any, at one time. There could be double that number or treble that number because uh, studies have shown that throughout the winter, you might think you've got one or two blue tits all winter, whereas in fact, they've discovered in some gardens, there was up to 60 different blue tits over the winter period because they were able to catch them and tag them. So you might think you're only looking after a few birds, whereas in fact the turnover in the garden can can be quite high. So by the end of the winter, you may have benefited hundreds of, of birds without, without really knowing it. But yes, it was quite phenomenal watching the live feed. And it was like a conveyor belt and it was like as if it was speeded up as well they, they, they looked like they were operating at double normal speed but they weren't they were coming in grabbing a, a sunflower seed from the middle of the table and then popping off to their favourite perch to eat it and then back again but with six of them uh, in view at the one time it was constant it was amazing it really was teacher 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 that's what the great that's the one. sings yes. yeah yeah exactly Terrence. and the one thing about the great tit it always reminds me that spring is on the way because I heard it there in your garden and I heard it at the end of that report and I heard it earlier on during the week when I was up the canal. You might see lots of birds during the winter time. You might hear the sparrows and you might hear the starlings and that. But to me, when does spring start? I know some people say it's when they see the first daffodil or when they see the first snowdrop. But to me, it's when you hear that call from the great tit. And it's a very simple little call. Teacher, teacher, teacher. And to me, that is the real start of spring. And I heard it over the weekend. Well, speaking of teacher, 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 you visited a school in County Meath for the programme where you met. Which class was it? It was Anina Vura and it was School Vrida in Balyakar, Kuntinami. And they sent in, the teacher there, Mr Quigley, sent in a lovely email. And I went down to visit his class and to see exactly what they were doing with their birds. Terry, oh, and we'll make some wrong cart. Tartu's a wrong cart. Mr. Quigley. Gee, which Terry? Can I start to? Tommy Gomai. We are so excited. We even practiced a little dawn. Would you like to hear it? Yes. A little dawn for you. All together. And it's about you, I was on microphone. Tartary was on microphone. Now, we've all got our coats on, yeah? Yeah. Okay, let's move out. Well, we've been uh, attracting a lot of little birds now in the last number of weeks. Yes, I yeah, see them Yeah, keep coming. going there. My name's Ruby, and did you know it takes two days for birds to get used to of the bird feeders to, like, eat the seeds? Oh, I see. So we're going to see some of the, of the bird feeders now, yeah? Yeah. Okay, come on. Bring me over and show me. Howie. I know a fact about Robin. Robins are the only birds who sing all through winter. And why do they do that? 
because the signs of angels in heaven and angels in heaven never stop singing. I see, the angels in heaven, they never stop singing. So the birds, when you put out food for them, they'll know that you put out that because they know that you put out the food. And they're happy, are they? Yeah, and they go tell all the other birds. And the other birds come in then as well? Yeah. I see a blue tit here landing in this tree here, look, just yes. up here. And there's a great tit, do you see it there? The one with the black line going down his chest. See him coming over here? That's to the a field? great... That's a great tit. Okay. He's got the black line going down his chest. Can you see the birdies over there, the feeder? Yeah. Did you know what those birds were? Yeah, there was a blue tit. Yeah. And there's another bird there. So it's been a great exercise and the children have been doing a bit of bird watching at home in their own gardens. Their parents are involved, the grandparents are involved. Everybody in the community has taken a huge interest in, in this activity. And yeah. I see it's, it's starting to rain again, so we better yeah. move back in okay. again. Okay. Right, so we'll go back inside. You're going to sing me a song before I go, is We're that right? We're going to sing a little song. Sing a song to Bridget, Bridget brings the spring, awakens all the fields and flowers, and calls the birds to sing. Good morning, I have to go. So thank you for today. It's been a lovely day here in St. Bridget's School. And please keep looking after the birdies, will you? Yeah. Bye. 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 Oh, they must be listening to Moody Goes Wild a lot. Terry is all <laughs> hey, I can say. Bye. <laughs> Absolutely lovely class. Thank you very much to Mr. Quigley and to all of the children. Thank you so much. I had a lovely day there. And I must say, Derek, they sent in some presents I there know, to I you. I saw them. Lovely cards yeah, and, and a painted yes, tile. tile. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's g- guys and girls, thank you very much indeed. Everybody. To everybody who listens to Moody Goes Wild in County Meath, thank you very much indeed. Now, let's go back to Jim Wilson in Cork. Jim, apart from the great tits that you had on the bird table, mm-hmm. on the hanging feeder that contained the Niger seed, you had a goldfinch and you described beautifully for the people listening what a goldfinch looks like. So do it again. <laughs> my pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, it, it was a gold, one goldfinch sitting on the Niger feeder and it was happily feeding away on the seeds, uh, which, which allows you... That's the beauty about having a a bird table not too far from your window, not too close, but not too far. You can actually watch them at your leisure. And this bird was just stunning. Uh, The the goldfinch, it's about the size of a slim sparrow, we'll say. And uh, it um, has a conical beak, which is pale, slightly slightly pinkish with a little dark tip sometimes. Then the face itself is this magnificent dark red colour like a blood red colour really beautiful and then surrounded on both sides by uh, a, a lovely white and a little darker on the cap but then as you come down along the body uh, both sides of the breast they've got this this kind of wash of golden brown and it's I'm sure that's where the bird got its name beautiful when you see them up close uh, when the sun catches the feathers it almost has that luster of of gold uh, on it and that then sort of flows over the back and out towards the wings and then at the end of the wings you've got the black feathers with with the white white patches on them, and also this what we call a wing stripe or a wing bar of 
really bright yellow, which you really only see to full effect when they're flying. And usually uh, you see it best when they often fight over over a bird feeder or over some food and they'll tangle together and up into the air and back down again. And you can really see those beautiful flashes of yellow as they flap their wings. Uh, and then when they land, they fold them up and you just see a little, it looks a little like... Um, I suppose like a little f- f- uh, lightning, like a, st- a lightning strike they, of yellow uh, on the wings. And then the tail is a little short tail, which is forked like a lot of the finch family. Uh, and on the tail, there's also a little bit of yellow. And then you've got the feet, which are kind of a short and pinkish. Uh, and that really is a pen picture of the goldfinch, which I, I think is as beautiful a bird as you will find anywhere in the world and that's not without exaggeration Jim the goldfinch I think is particularly interesting from the point of view of the Irish Garden Bird Survey because when you started the survey with Birdwatch Ireland uh, 37 years ago now uh, that bird the goldfinch was not a common garden visitor I think it was only in around 4% of the gardens in the survey at the time and now nearly four decades later it's dramatically shot up the charts last winter it was in almost 82% of the gardens in the survey came in in 8th place in in the list of birds in gardens what do you think has, has led to that change in its fortunes? I know it's 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 a really interesting one because goldfinches were in decline uh, they reckon through the mid part of the 20th century and the early part and it was put down to things like habitat loss and uh, also that they were trapped uh, for the cage bird industry mm. uh, a lot of them were but that that's pretty much uh, died out now uh, it's now illegal actually to to trap them uh, and I really do think in some ways it may be the gardens that, that I, like I mentioned earlier on about this collective nature reserve that is all the, the gardens in Ireland, um, me and the feeding of birds and they've copped onto it and they learn, uh, birds can learn from each other uh, where there's a good food supply because you'll often notice when you put out a bird feeders for the first time you might just get one bird and then two and within a week there's they're, they're queuing up for it you know and, and and how does that happen and it must be a case of birds are watching each other the way they fly the way they dip down over a hedge or something and they know that they may be going for food and they'll check it out so i think the goldfinches have benefited a bit from that but i find it hard to believe that it could only be feeding them in the garden that has led to such a meteoric rise in the rankings from when the uh, survey started uh, there may there must be other factors that we have yet to uh, put our finger on Jim finches in general they're beautiful birds you've got the chaff finches and the green finches but the goldfinch it, it's mm. the one that really stands out and you explained it there beautifully what it looks like I often wondered with a bird that's so showy for want of a better word does that a bird like that, does it not attract predators more so, the likes of a, a sparrowhawk or a peregrine falcon? Does he not stand out more than, say, the sparrow? Because the sparrow is a very inconspicuous bird, yet we call the hawk a sparrowhawk. We don't call it a goldfinch <laughs> hawk. Is there, has there been any research or that done on the number of finches that are taken by birds of prey and the comparison between, say, greenfinch, which is a dull enough bird, mm-hmm. and the goldfinch. Yeah, it's an, that's an interesting thing, and, I, and I'd appreciate uh, Niall's comments on these too, is, is that often the bright colours 
uh, there, there, there's an effect uh, called disruptive patterning, uh, which can lead to a camouflage. Uh, famously, during uh, the, I think, the Second World War, they painted the ships with these bold lines and blocks and squares and it just broke up the outline of the animal a bit like a zebra you could you could say gosh a zebra would stick out like a sore thumb to a lion compared to the impala or, or those other fairly brown looking ones but that disruptive pattern of the black and white stripes when it's in its habitat can make it almost invisible and there are times when you look at a goldfinch when it's not on a feeder when it's in a bush and sometimes you can find it hard to actually see them, especially if they're on a big area of teasels, which they absolutely love. Uh, sometimes you, 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 you know, you'd have to look twice and realise, oh, there's, there's one, there's two, there's 10, there's 20. Mm. Uh, but I am not aware, Terry, of whether they, 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 the colours have made a difference to how many of them uh, become prey to birds like the sparrowhawk or the peregrine. And of course, Jim, when it comes to birds' coloration, what the human eye sees is not necessarily what the bird's eye sees. Very we know true. that some birds um, can uh, be more have lots of uh, ultraviolet patches on them. You know, the blue tit, for example, the male has a patch of ultraviolet colour on the back of its head, invisible to the human eye, but uh, very visible to the birds. So um, we have to bear that in mind too. We know that sparrowhawks have very, very good eyesight. All birds of prey do, um, be- much better than human eyesight. Um, but we also know, therefore, that their prey have evolved ways to try and counteract that. So they have have the, the, those flashes of yellow on the wing like you're saying there it's so visible when they fly that may well yes distract the bird in flight it may be hard when those birds are flying in a flock for a sparrow hawk or a falcon to actually single one out uh, I think a great example of that um, not so much a garden bird a bird called a lapwing um, a type of plover and then when they have they have black and white wings and when they fly together in a flock those black and white wings they jerk around in an almost random way it's very hard to pick out an individual bird mm. it's almost dazzling mm. um, I think another thing as well when you see the, the birds like the, the goldfinches and the sparrows in flocks together it's strength in numbers it's more pairs of eyes looking out for danger so while you're feeding you're hoping that one of your flock mates will spot that sparrow hawk and will let you know about it and of course when you're in a flock too if the predator does come the odds are that it's going to be your neighbour that's grabbed rather than you your own individual chances of survival are higher when you're in a, in a mixed group and that may be what's behind starling murmurations as well taking it to an extreme uh, but uh, th- those birds you know they've evolved alongside these predators they're very good at coping with them But back to the garden birds and back to what's going on here yes. today what we were doing this afternoon the garden bird survey and encouraging people to actually monitor the birds in their garden and take part in this huge citizen science mm. would you call it experiment uh, it's certainly an experiment absolutely yes and and, and uh, because the first time we've done it we, we were worried <laughs> wondering how we're going would anyone pay any attention to this well, it but seems like thousands were did. you know yeah. thousands mm. were indeed now there is other science going on in the garden and that's being carried out by bird ringers yes. explain what a bird ringer is now so a bird ringer it's a very highly trained ornithologist who specialises in catching um, birds under licence from the National Parks and Wildlife Service after years of training uh, and what they do is they catch them in, usually in special nest, nets called mist nets which are very very fine the birds are caught in them they sort of fall into little pockets they're not harmed a lot of the training is around how to get those birds out of those nets without hurting them uh, and then they're weighed they're measured uh, as quickly as possible and then a little metal ring with a unique number code on it is uh, stamped on it is put onto their leg it doesn't hurt the bird it's a different size for you know, depending on the size of the bird uh, and it's no different to us wearing a wristwatch it doesn't really affect the bird at all 
Uh, and then that bird, if it's found again, um, either alive by another ringer or someone sees it at a bird table with binoculars, reads the code, or very often if it's found dead, mm-hmm. we're able to work out how long it lived, where it came from. And then you find that actually some of these birds come into your garden. They could have come from the other side of Europe. They, you know, the starlings particularly, you know, some of them could have been born in Ireland. Some would have come all the way from the Baltic Sea and they're all together in your garden. It's really interesting. We wouldn't know that without Well, running. we all know in this programme a bird ringer, do we not? We do indeed, absolutely. Yeah. On the count of three, shall we say his name? One, two, three. Richard, Richard Collins. Collins. Now, welcome to my private nature reserve. It's not exactly enormous. In fact, it's very small. But it's still a nature reserve. What do you think of it? Isn't it I think it's lovely. It's a bit unkept. Is that what you would say? Well, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get too personal, Richard. The research <laughs> on, on gardens is interesting because it says the very potty trained, very neat and tidy gardens are not the very best, nor, oddly enough, are the ones that are allowed go totally wild. Mm-hmm. The ones that support the largest range of birds, animals, insects and everything are those that are slightly off, you know, slightly seedy. They pay lip service to the conventional garden, but they are not a wilderness either. And there you have... Well, you certainly fit the bill, Richard. I should take a photograph of you and put it on the website so everybody can see. But I see that you have your mist net up. So explain exactly what a mist net is. A mist net is a kind of a spider's web. It's very thin, very light, as you can see if you touch it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the birds are flying around, and of course they don't see it. And it's put up against these apple and pear trees and those pines at the back, so they can't see it against the pines. And they hit it, and they fall into the little pockets, and they are trapped and held there until I come along, extract them very carefully, put them in cotton bags take them in and ring them, measure them, weigh them, determine their sex, their age, all that kind of thing. Now, how long have you been ringing birds? Oh, 25, 30 years, something like that. And here in this garden? Well, it's a thing I do, yes. The gardens, it's very interesting. It throws light on things. Looking at the garden and saying, oh, there's a such and such, and there's a blue test, and there's a gold test, that's fine. But you don't know if the cold tit you saw an hour ago is the same one you're seeing now and the one you'll see this afternoon. A mist net tells you all kinds of things that you wouldn't know otherwise. For instance, you find that there are a surprising number of blue tits around the place. You catch one after another after another. And the same with things like, say, house sparrows. You can catch huge numbers of house sparrows. Because when you re-trap them, there's a ring on the legs of the one you've seen before. So, so that's a ring that you have put on their leg. Exactly. And then yes. you take information from that, and then you send it off to the British Trust you, for Yes, you would send it off. So you're not just willy-nilly sticking up a net in your garden to catch birds just to see what species it is. You're doing it for a purpose. Yes, you have to have a license, you have to train, you have to qualify, then you have to fulfil all kinds of rules and regulations, and then you are licensed by the minister here, and with a ringing licence from the British Trust for Ornithology, you send the information off to the British Museum London, they send it on to their big computer, and they look at not just my garden, but all the gardens, and they might see something like, oh, we didn't catch anything like the same number of long-tailed tits this year as we caught last year. What's happening to our lot? The relative. See, it's, it's, it removes the kind of arbitrary anecdotal element. And here's a measurement, or a more accurate measurement of what's going on with our birds. Now, are there some birds you have to be more careful dealing with when you have them in the hand after catching them in this fine mesh net because it's a bit like a nylon stocking actually and it's black Mm -hmm. so are there some birds that you have to be more careful with than others oh yes there's a great if you catch the blue tits they fight 
they bite you and they hurt they never give up they 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 struggle all the way they're very angry with you and good they don't i need like to if somebody caught me in a net yeah but at the other end of the spectrum, the most highly strung bird is, I think, the bullfinch. Bullfinches are always very nervous. You catch them. You have to be very careful with bullfinch. Handle with care. And you generally catch the two together because they stay together all the time. Are you talking about the male and female now? Male and female, yes. You catch the male and the female. They're paired. They always want to be close to each other. They get very anxious if they are not. He has to see where she is. Make sure that nobody is cuckled him, him, if nothing else. Uh, well, you take them out and you treat them with great care. You ring them gently, all that, and you release them together so that they are the minimal disturbance. But it is the sensitive one. you know. And how do you know they're a pair when you catch two bullfinches together? Well, you don't know anything for certain <laughs> no. in this life, you know. But, uh, you, but you do know they're male or female. You do know they're male or female. So how do you determine that? Oh, the the, the bishop uh, the bishop bird is what the Germans call the, the bullfinch. It has a huge red breast and a white rump. David Lack uh, submitted a paper once uh, which he entitled Polygamy and Territoriality in a Bishop. <laughs> and it, it was rejected on account of the title for some learned journal, but that's what they say anyway. Uh, so it's very clear. And the reason he's such a poor singer, for instance, is he doesn't need to be. He's got such a beautiful plumage. And the other thing is, of course, he's mated and he's with that girlfriend always. He never leaves her and she never leaves him. They're always together. And they're not territorial. You might get two pairs nesting in the same tree, for instance. But they are monogamous, to the best of our knowledge. They are. They seem to be very long-term monogamous. They're Sensitive souls they are. They're very sensitive souls. You have to be very careful of them. Richard Collins talking about the bullfinches. Now, Jim, you didn't mention bullfinches today. At your hanging feeders or on your table, and all we saw was the goldfinch. Not all we saw, but there were no bullfinches. Do you normally get them in or ever get them in or not get them in or what? Yeah, Derek, it varies from year to year. We've had them, I would say, every winter for as long as I can remember, but sometimes it's just a fleeting visit. They just come into the feeders. Usually, uh, just like Richard was talking about, you'd have uh, the female and the male wouldn't be too far away uh, and they sometimes would take turns on the feeder and then they would disappear after sometimes an hour. They might stick around for a day or two, but there have been winters where we've had them literally from sort of the end of October well into March and even had four to five bullfinches at a time. But this winter, we've only had them on and off. Yeah, Jim, they're a bird that seldom come to my garden. And I often think of them as being kind of shy birds, Mm -hmm. where they'd stay back away from all of the other birds. You'll see them high up in the tree. If you've got an apple tree or a pear tree, yeah, you'll see them on the blossoms there in the springtime. But they're, they're not a bird that I see a lot, certainly in the whole of the county of Dublin, Anytime I'm out and about. And you can't miss them because they've no, kind of got an, an orange body and a black face and a well, black head, haven't they? Yeah, but like... Is it the, orange? Would you say orange? Uh, pinkishy orange. Pinkishy yeah. orangey. Yeah. Orangey, yeah. pinkishy And of course, orange. the male and female are so different. The male mm-hmm. is so much prettier than, than the female. This exhibits this kind of sexual dimorphism that you'd see in the likes of maybe well, what pheasants. What does she look like? She's duller birds. A bit like about, about pheasants as well and peacocks and that. She's, she is a lot duller and that. So you, you could see that she's the, the female of the male. They're, they're very, very similar but their colours are much more radiant in the male. But um, a bird, as I say, I don't see an awful lot of. Mm. 
Derek, it's actually a bird that I haven't recorded this winter yet in the Irish Garden Bird Survey in my own garden, but I'm holding my breath now, keeping my fingers crossed, because we still have almost a month of the survey to go, and I just noticed that the ornamental cherry tree in my garden has come into blossom, and bullfinches love to eat fruit blossom in fruit trees, um, and I don't mind that because it's just an ornamental cherry, I want it there for the birds, but very often it blossoms after <laughs> the survey's ended, but this year it hasn't, um, so I might still get them, I've got a few weeks left yet. Well, you were saying today at the start of the programme, that the beauty of this garden bird survey over 37 years is that we've recorded birds that weren't there before and now are there and we've seen trends up and down. And one of my highlights from today was Eric Dempsey when he was telling us about the great spotted woodpecker that visits his garden. And just when he was telling us all about how to differentiate between the male and female, one arrived at the hanging feeder. Now how you can tell the male from the female, just at the back of the neck, the male has a little red square spot. The female is black there. And we've had a female in on occasions, but it's mostly the male. But this morning, we had both woodpeckers in, which is a good sign that perhaps they are beginning to pair bond. Although the male didn't tolerate her for very long, he moved her on out of the garden very, very quickly. So he's still a little bit dominant. And they are a bird I would never have imagined seeing in my entire life in a garden. You know, I'm still of the era where grey spotted woodpeckers were exceptionally rare. And as Niall was saying, that the influx started in the early 2000s. And little did we realise when we went to see these first boards, Angus Tyner, my good friend, who lives just south of where I live, he had one of the first ones in Wicklow coming to his garden. And we all went down, all the boarders went down to see, wow, an East Coast an East Coast woodpecker. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would have a woodpecker coming to our garden. But not only that, in the last two years, the male has brought in young birds into the garden as well. So we had the pleasure of watching the male feeding three juveniles on the nut feeders. And we have old logs, uh, you know, erected. So when the woodpeckers arrive, they can actually perch. Oh, hang on. As I'm speaking, as I'm speaking, I've just seen the woodpecker go into the trees at the back. And he will always do that. Yes, he, he's coming straight down. Oh, that's beautiful. Sorry. <laughs> um, they, they'll always land quite high up first and then they will come down onto the feeders. They always like to have a look around before they land on the feeders. And as I'm speaking to you now, he's on the furthest feeding station we have. And he tends to like that one because it's... Um, it's a little bit away from the house, uh, so he, he, he tends to always go over there. It gives him good vision around the place. He ha He's just gone again. I'm not quite sure what disturbed or a wood pigeon or something flew by. So he's just gone off up into the trees. So just as I was speaking there, he just he just appeared out of nowhere. Oh, fantastic stuff. Where would you be without a great spotted woodpecker or indeed an Eric Dempsey to tell us all about it? But that's pretty much all we have time for today. I want to thank everybody who took part in this, our inaugural Mooney Goes Wild Birdwatch Yard in Great Big Garden Birdwatch. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Remember, you can still take part in the Garden Bird Survey. That's right, Derek. So people can go to rte.ie forward slash Mooney or birdwatchireland.ie. You'll find the details of the Irish Garden Bird Survey there. And you can take part right up until the end of February. And we couldn't have done it without it. Jim Wilson. Jim, thank you very much indeed in Coven County Cork. Thank you very much, Derek, and all the team. It was, it was a great pleasure and an honour to be part of it. Thank you. And we have a link to Jim Wilson's Guide to 
Feeding Garden Birds on our website, so you can visit that anytime you like. Thanks to Terry also. It was interesting, Terry, wasn't it? Oh, uh, incredible. Can't believe that the day went so fast. I think the best part of it was listening to Eric there and just as that bird arrived. I mean, that's what radio is all about, to be able to listen in and to know that this is happening now. I couldn't agree more, Terry. Fantastic. Thanks also to our researcher, Michelle Brown, our broadcast coordinator, Daniel Keating, Richard Collins, Amy Lana and everybody else who contributed to today's programme. Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Moody. Back to usual business next Monday at 10pm. Till then, bye!